This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truska, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 199 with Pamela Gay. If my voice just went up a little bit with this sound of joy and amazement, it's because I really am amazed. 199 episodes. I don't know if you understand that or I understand that, but to me, it just is the power of keeping with something. Thank you, heartbreak. The first thing that I feel like I've really just stuck with, like nothing could keep me from doing it. When I really think of all the hours and all the people, all the guests, all the sharing that has been behind 199 episodes, it is just bewildering to think that I have done this, that I've sat at this desk, that I had edited all these episodes, for better or worse in terms of the editing, but that also all these guests just came to me and were so here for the message. I want you guys to know what her book is about, what her memoir is about, because we will be speaking about it. So I'm just gonna read the back of the book. I'm so glad you're here is the story of a family disrupted by ramifications of a father's mental illness. The memoir opens with a riveting count of Gay, age 18, witnessing her father being bound in a straitjacket and carried out of the house on a stretcher. The trauma she experiences escalates when, after her father has had electroshock treatments at a state mental hospital, her parents leave her in a college dorm room and move from Massachusetts to Florida without her. She feels abandoned. Both her parents have gone missing. Decades later, when Gay and her three much older siblings show up for their father's funeral, she witnesses her sondered family's inability to gather together. Eventually, she is diagnosed with PTSD of abandonment and treated with EMDR therapy, and finally begins to heal. Poignant and powerful, I'm so glad you're here, is Gay's exploration of the idea that while the wounds we carry from growing up in fractured families stay with us, they do not have to control us. A reflective journey that will inspire readers to think about their own relational lives. Let's just end it there and get straight into the conversation. As always, thank you for keeping this dream alive by listening to Thank You Heartbreak. I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience. Hey, my name is Pamela Gay, G-A-Y. I'm a writer, and I'll be talking about my new just-published memoir, what I included and especially what I didn't include about relationships. But my mother didn't name me Pamela. She was sick for two weeks in hospital when I was born. And in order to get out of the hospital, me with her, I had to have a name. So her beloved sister, Madge, 
came and she named me Pamela. She was very English, gay is an English name that goes way back, I mean, centuries. So she named me Pamela. I found out later my mother would have named me Ellen, and I don't particularly like that name. No offense to all Ellen. Yeah, yeah, totally. She would have named me after her cousin, Ellen, who lived in Canada. She lived alone, never married, and she lived 100 years. (laughs) Maybe that's why. I don't know. And so she called me the good mistake. I was. Oh my gosh, you're kidding me. The good mistake. Yeah, well, because you do need this bit of background to understand. So my memoir, I'm so glad you're here, is the story of a family, my family, disrupted by ramifications of a father's mental illness. My mother, my three much older siblings, mm-hmm. and myself, a latecomer in this family. And so I'm reading that part because you got the good mistake, because there were those three, you see, much older. My sister was 12 years older. And they grew up, it seemed like, with different parents. And it was the Great Depression, which we're talking about now in relation to the pandemic. I mean, they were poor. My father walked to work. I didn't hear all the stories, but my siblings experienced quite something different. My sister, 12 years older, and two brothers. And then I came along after World War II. Mm. Well, that was a whole different time. I didn't know my siblings very well. I was probably nine or 10 when they all moved out. They moved out as quickly as they could because of the way trauma played out in my family. So I'm telling this story from my point of view because it's a memoir, how I was affected in particular, but also in relation to other members of the family I grew up in. So it would be called a relational memoir because Mm -hmm. all of us were affected by my father's mental illness, the ramifications. My mother, who only learned about this six months into the marriage and pregnant already, mm-hmm. of course, because of his 19-whatever. You know? <laughs> and so I love this quote from memoirist Carolyn Steedman. We are all born into someone else's narrative. I Our love parents. That. I love that. We don't know what we're going to get. We're born into someone else's story. Don't you love that? I have the quote in my book. It's perfect. It's perfect. Also, just in relationships, thinking about not even romantic relationships, every time we meet someone, we could be a player in their story as well. And like the narrative takes off from the way that they think of us. Yes. And the way they were raised too. the story they're coming from. Okay, you take two stories you're putting together. Fascinating about life. It's really good in that sense. I want to read then the trauma I experienced. I'm only going to read an excerpt of it. Mm. I write in flash form. And I will say, because it was so traumatic, what happened to me at age 18, this will give uh, everybody uh, the idea of the trauma and how it played out into all relationships. Clear the voice. Yeah. (laughs) I was 18 and home from college on Thanksgiving break. It was my mother's birthday. John F. Kennedy had just been shot, and my father was being carried out on a stretcher, his arms strapped to his side, his elbows locked, his body bound in a straitjacket, then sunk in a stretcher like a furrow in a field, his eyes, the only part of his body, not restrained. He couldn't restrain his eyes, two black dots flickering in the light, darting wildly back and forth. They carried him out the door, and my mother followed, pausing in the doorframe to ask me, would I watch the turkey? I nodded, yes, I would watch the turkey, not TV. I sat on the gray kitchen linoleum, propped up against a cupboard next to the oven, and listened to the turkey hissing in the dark, hot oven. 
fat dripping like sweat from its headless body. Memory of my mother sewing a flap of skin over its neck cavity to keep the stuffing in. This dead turkey, this day, my only companion. My mother had asked me to watch the turkey, but I couldn't see the turkey. I sat in the dark alone, so alone. There was no window for viewing. I opened the door and sat cross-legged watching the turkey. Then I turned off the oven. After a while, the turkey stopped hissing. I remember the turkey had colored in second grade, each feather a different color. All, all its feathers spread like a peacock. A happy turkey, not a turkey beheaded for the oven. And then I grew sad, so sad. My father, my mother, JFK, and the turkey. The trauma I experienced escalated when, after my father had electroshock treatments at a state mental hospital, my parents leave me in a college dorm room mm. and move from Massachusetts to Miami, Florida, <laughs> without me. I feel abandoned. Both my parents have gone missing. Mm. So the abandonment is huge here. Maybe if my mother had said, I'm going to go in the ambulance, just turn off the oven, and why don't you go down to Patty's house down there? But she must have been so traumatized, it's all I can think of, that she just left me there. Yeah. It, was, it was really nightmare horrible. I didn't even realize the extent that that played out in my being. And then right after that, I could see she just wanted to get out of there. You know, I grew up in that house for 17 years, whatever. Once my father got out of that hospital and my sister was in Miami, she just sold the house and left. What was I going to do, go and be in a trailer with her near my sister and my father in a mental hospital in Florida? So my memory is her pulling up at a curb outside Springfield College in Massachusetts, leaving me standing on a curb. So I'm going to just jump forward with one other thing before we go further into other relationships. And this is the only one I included, a male relationship in this case, someone I got involved with. I got involved with many different people which the trauma infected. I'll talk about that later. If I opened up what we're even going to talk about now, it would take over the book. And I really wanted to trace this whole family mm. and where we ended up. And then I opened up other points of view. Why did my sister act like this? She, yeah. she acted awful. Why did this brother, I began to open up. Of course, I could never know their whole stories. Look, Writer Rebecca Solnit says, really, there are so many stories. Mm. And that still gives me the chills. We don't just have my story. Right. We think we do sometimes. And often in this culture, we don't even listen to each other. But let me read this one called Standing on a Curb. I had just been in Ireland with this male friend of mine I'd been involved with for a while, and we had pretty much broken up, but bring it friendly enough. This is when I decided I wanted to stay in Galway City, Ireland another week and go to Erin Islands on my own, and then I was going to go back to New York City and so forth. And so you know, we understood each other. He's saying goodbye to me now as he's pulling off of his car. Standing on a curb, Galway City, Ireland, fall 1995. Standing on a curb in Galway City, saying goodbye at the end of an affair as my now former lover gets in his car, starts pulling out. I weep. Tears waterfall down my cheeks. He stops, gets out of the car, and holds me, hugs me. Let's go back up to the room, he says, where we had spent the night, and I would spend another night before heading out to the Aran Islands in the morning. I don't know what came over me, I said, as we sat up in bed, his arm around me. I thought this is what you wanted, he said, licking my tears. I do, I said, wiping away the last tear. In the past, I always saw you off first, and then I left. 
you wanted to stay an extra week on your own, go to the Aran Islands. I have to go back to work. I, I asked if you were sure. I think I, I'm just tired. I'll stay here and rest. Sure? Sure. Thanks for the hug and licking my tears. I've never had anyone. Hmm. Shh, he whispered as I curled up with myself, and he gently tucked me in with a blanket for comfort. I closed my eyes, then he drifted away. That evening, I went to a concert featuring traditional Irish music, everyone clapping, smiling, ending the night with song. It wasn't until much later that I realized that standing on a curb while someone I had been close to drove away triggered that feeling of abandonment that was stuck in my body. Hmm. There were other curbstone endings too, though no more on actual curbs, just the same feeling, loved and left, start, stop, flank, everything gone gray. Mm. I loved that, loved and left. I mean, I don't love that, but... Yeah, no, it's well put. Loved and left, start, stop, blank, Mm. everything gone gray. I think that really captures that feeling I had, and I had it, you know, over and over many times. The blank is like feeling numb or in shock or... Emptiness, just wiped out. But to think that you're now a memoirist, you know, there's these wipeouts in life. Something is suddenly missing. And Mm -hmm. someone that does a memoir goes back and fills in the gaps. Yes, it's been quite a journey, for want of a better word. Exactly. The writing took me somewhere. When I first wrote this, it was called The Family Funeral. And I took it to a workshop in Key West, I remember. And everyone, like, this is really a good story. And then we said, we all hate your sister. We hate her. And I went, and see, that's because it was very fresh what happened. And my sister was really upset and taking out on my mother, who didn't seem to be like her mother. The relationship plays out in different ways with my sister. I still was hurt by the way she treated my mother right. and, and me, but there was more understanding that she had a story. She had mm-hmm. things going on. And so I actually, in terms of the book, I end with this last chapter, Grief, Renewal, and Hope. So I was carrying wounds from growing up in a fractured family. I wanted to somehow free myself, and I did with lots of help. Anyway, I moved, I'm going to move to the second paragraph. I'm so glad you're here. My mother's voice echoes. But what can I do now? Look back at the past with forgiveness and compassion, including self-compassion. And I even have a quote from Leonard Cohen. But I trust now that above the clouds, the sky is blue and spacious, like my inner space that is always there. There, no matter what the weather, I end with hope, a place of possibility. That's how the light gets in. Mm. And that's Leonard Cohen coming in there, the crack of right. light. So you're yeah. saying it's the possibility is where the light gets in. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's good where I came to grief, renewal, and hope. I didn't want this to be a misery memoir, which it is not. It's hard stuff, but I come through, I loved my mother, all the good things and And I have compassion for her because she was abandoned when she was five years old. So she didn't have her mother or father. And she was shuffled back and forth in the Quebec to Vermont border. My my mother had a love of life. She didn't walk around like, but that did happen to her. And so my mother was on her own journey by the time I arrived later in her life. 
after her death, I found her letter to her brother George. He was in the army and she wrote to him. She was really upset about having a fourth child that she hadn't planned. That was me. But then I got called the good mistake and I, she did rely on me. Does it actually feel personal when you hear that you were a quote-unquote mistake? Well, I think it's different for different people. And then the good mistake. I mean, I didn't like that. And I heard much later from a sister-in-law that my brother, he felt that my mother really, oh, she was, I was good. Like I was great, you know, Mm. compared to the others. So there's that good mistake thing kind of, you know, it just kind of, it seems like that would be a good thing to say, but the mistake thing. And then I read that letter. The thing is, um, I had compassion for my mother, even standing at that doorway, not thinking to get me out of the house, turn the oven off. I mean, it was awful leaving me there, especially with the TV on with Kennedy's on the stretcher and that going on. And it's all very black and white and horrible. I also expressed compassion for her because I began thinking all these years later, she must have been traumatized to do that. My mother wouldn't have done that. She must have been so traumatized going out the door. She couldn't even think of that. It was awful what was happening. But it reminds me of when your dad was dying and the state that she was in then and how you to go to Blockbuster and you just like left a movie playing for her. So it's almost like she became the child and you were kind of called upon to do the very thing that she did to you. Just stay here, watch the TV set, I'll be back. That's right. That's very good. You're seeing that. That's true. It's, it's quite, it's a semi-comic yeah. tragic scene. But my point here at the end when I say pr- she did pretty good for a mother The thing is, it does not take away from my trauma that I experienced. You can still have compassion for someone, but if you've been hurt, it doesn't mean... You don't want your compassion to negate your own experience. No, it doesn't take away from it. So that's why I put pretty good for a mother. But I did it not just as a rating, but to try to bring readers into... I want people to think about their own relational lives. We all have relational lives. We're all relating to different people, whether family, friends, or whatever. And so all these kinds of things come up in different ways. One question I have is that because your father was one with the mental illness, and that was the surprise for your mom, and that's what you guys all had to go through. Why was the trauma, why did you identify it more with your mom and not your dad? Why was the relationship about recovering the relationship with your mom and not your dad? That is interesting. And I love my dad, and I had good times with my dad. Because I came along late, my mother said, oh, he spent more time with you than with anyone. He would read these books to me. I hung on to my mother the whole time, though, growing up. She was the thread, which was like an umbilical cord of sorts. Mm -hmm. So she would be sewing and cooking. She was an ever-present mother, but she didn't like, I don't know how to say, really mother-mother, do you know what I mean? She wasn't nurturing. Thank you. She wasn't, because she had her own stuff going on, and just, it was an odd time, too. It was a very difficult time in many ways. I didn't know about what my siblings experienced, and my mother, she said she got angry with him, and there was all this battling going on, and my siblings were exposed to that. It was eerily quiet when I came along, but not like depressed quiet. It just was eerily kind of quiet. But I went around, I did my homework, and I had my friends, and, and my father, okay, so he sat in the living room a lot, and they didn't fight anymore when I was around, you see. And so I felt for my father. When I stood in that hallway and watched him being carried out on a stretcher, I happened to be standing right there. His eyes were flickering back and forth. He was scared. 
Yeah. And they put you in a straitjacket in those days. And he didn't actually have what they diagnosed him with because it was 1963. And hopefully we've come a long way. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and he was not a schizophrenic actually. But they did that in those days. And so I counted on my mother. There was the thread. She was all I had. I didn't have siblings who, sure, they didn't appreciate my coming along. I mean, they didn't hate me or something, but they were not there. They got out of the house as fast as they could from what I understand. And and my sister was always angry with me. And it wasn't probably about me. I was a little kid. I broke her record. I Whatever, you know. Yeah. So my mother was very important to me. She was the lifeline. She was the lifeline. Thank you. I, that, there you go. That's that's why. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But then also was part of the trauma, you know, at the very end of your dad's life, seeing how your mom was choosing to deal with it? Yes. Yes. Oh, that was, that gives me the chills still. But the only thing I can say again, it seemed too late. You know, why would she do that? She went through so much. And, you know, he had 28 shock treatments. And what those shock treatments did took away his memory of that whole period. But my mother remembered everything. Mm. Can you imagine how that is? And then this person, he doesn't remember because that's what they did. It took away that part. And he didn't have Alzheimer's. He wasn't, I mean, he lived to be 93 and he was on medication and could come home and everything. But he didn't, you know, she would try to talk about childhood or what happened. He said, I I don't remember. That's what happens. It just shocks it out of you? Oh, yeah. Uh You can read about it. I've studied all of this. I wanted to know more about it. And so I I think uh, to be fair to my mother, she was completely worn down. She was so worn down going back and forth to the family. He had to go to a nursing home in the age 93 and she would go back and forth and she got to know the people in there and they would, you know, keep dying. And then he was there and she watched him go downhill physically. I mean, kidneys are the last to go. And so she looked very youthful. We both look youthful. I'm 75. So what got me through that and understanding, why would she do that? She was completely worn to the bone, exhausted emotionally. Yeah. And it was too late when he reached, oh, it just so, I yeah. the so he's moving. He reached for her hand to say mm-hmm. goodbye. He knew he was going. And, and I saw that. And she turned around. She couldn't. It wasn't even like my mother. She was just so worn too much. The family didn't help her either, that the siblings, they had their problems with her. I remember growing up and going to the movies always with my parents and once sitting away from them because they would eat this popcorn and it was so annoying listening to it. Hmm. I started separating myself. And this one time I saw my dad and my mom sitting together sharing this popcorn and he went to touch her leg and like she shifted her leg away so he couldn't touch her. There you go. Really young. And it's something similar. I mean, yours is a different sort of gesture. Seeing someone shut down someone else's affection was yes. such a hard thing for me to see. And it, it, it shaped a lot of my feelings to her because what do you witness someone doing when they think you're not looking? Yes. Yeah. Oh. I just wrote and wrote and wrote in journal, you know, I observed everything because you can see I came into writing through observing. I stood in the hallway of, of our Cape Cod home with the older children and action going on and somebody came to the door and, and it's from the observing recording sort of like I had to record that I wonder if it's part of being an only child feeling like an only child you know and being the only young one in the house my friends thought I was an only child in school they didn't know that oh you have you know 
It could be. You mean, you know, you're a child in an adult home. Yeah. So like you're not on the same level. So part of it is that you're going to be observing the people around you. You're not always included in the same way because Very of the good. and the conversations. That's a good point you're making. Exactly. So tell me how the trauma uh, affected or infected the other relationships in your life. I was barely 20 years old. I was like a kid and I married, you know, way too young, probably because of what happened. Mm-hmm. I wanted to then go on my life and just, you know, went to college and I was going to do all this. I didn't think that trauma affected me. Just like your siblings, like you were getting out. It was a ticket out. Yeah, I was going to, and, but I was going to go on. I was going to make a good life. I was going to have a family. I was going to be healthy. And then we both graduated and went to Amherst and he went to the UMass. He was getting a PhD. I taught and I took courses and we were going to make a life and it was going to be, you know, I'm going to connect to family. And, and so it went along okay. Um, we had two children, but you're not going to believe this, maybe, but 10 years into the marriage, 10 years and two children into the marriage, mental illness that had been lurking you know, like my father, came out full blast. And today would be called severe bipolar disorder. He went crazy, angry, nuts, and he abused us, me and my two children. So you didn't see this coming. How does one, I guess, not fear the unknown to think that you could get into a marriage and have no clue that someone can change? What type of advice would you give to someone about that? Oh, you can't, you don't want to worry about that. I've only studied recently about bipolar disorder in the two different forms, and he had the severe form. And what I've learned is that disease usually lurks for quite a while, and it can come out when you're like 29, 30 years old, not usually earlier. My college roommate said, I'm really glad you, you know, you two are getting married. And the only thing that she tapped me on the shoulder, I said, what? What? And she said, I don't know. He just, sometimes he's really argumentative. And I, uh-huh. I worry about that a little. And I said, oh, yeah, I, yeah, he does. Yeah, I see what you mean. And even the night before the wedding, I went to the minister. It was a chapel where my grandfather went. It was near the college. And I, the night before I went and I said, I'm just wondering about this. I mean, I'm just kind of like, oh, people get jitters. You know, it's going to be fine. The sex will be great. He's Italian. I'm not oh my God. He said that to you? Yes. Oh, yes. I take it the sex didn't make up for the abuse. Exactly. <laughs> but I left and I was left standing on a curb having to get the two children together to get out of there. And we got divorced. I left that whole situation. I had nothing because I was following him wherever he was going and so forth. So but I only, and kind of, I think, thinking about this as I was going to talk to her, I said, well, what about the divorce and, or, or what happened there? I mean, the trauma of abandonment. I abandoned him. But, oh, hello, he abandoned us. I mean, he didn't do it on purpose. He has this mental illness. We had to escape. But it felt like abandonment because, of course, I had plans for our family and and the children, and they were going to go to these schools, and they were going, we were going to do this. And so it still was a form of abandonment. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, because I think that you, one, have an idea of someone, and you have this recollection and this history of how things were, and the fact that, yeah, illness came along and changed that. But you still feel like there's a sense, like, doesn't someone have control over themselves? Don't they remember what we had, what we were going toward? Yeah, and I think right. the abandonment is just like, you know, reality gets in the way somehow. 
Yes, yes, um, exactly. Afterward, I had a number of different relationships, the poet, the sculptor, the philosopher, and the actor. The poet wanted to marry me. I said, I really don't want to live with anyone right now. I just divorced. And he, we kind of stayed sort of together two years, and he really wanted to marry me. And I did not want to marry him. I didn't. But in my own time, I really, yeah. I've already supported someone else. And so I wanted to break up. And we broke up, but I felt abandoned. Oh my God. I even would go and leave letters in his car and everything, or just try to chase him. It was, it was like manic. It was because the friendship was abandoned. I didn't want to marry him and be with him. So I thought, what's wrong with me? I, I wanted to break up. I definitely did. But the abandonment, so much, and I didn't even understand what was going on then. And then I met the sculptor. We were really good friends. And then he went further one day. We, we were going to his show at this museum, and we were on this walking bridge over the canal, and we were walking together to go, and he turned around, and he kissed me. Mm. And, oh, just, and it was beautiful, and it was, it was lovely. But right away, I can remember feeling this is the end. Because it's begun now, there will be, I didn't use the exact words in my soul, but I feared abandonment that, again, this good friendship, okay, because it has a beginning, so it's going to have an end, and it's going to be abandonment. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I didn't sit there thinking, but I can look back, and I felt it. Yeah. I felt it. And then the same thing happened, let's see, with this philosopher. I enjoyed going about with him. We traveled to a lot of places together. He broadened my horizons and, you know, spent time in Paris and Ireland and so forth. But I, I didn't. I needed to just break away from him. It wasn't going to go anywhere and it wasn't. But I still, I felt, uh, um, I didn't feel abandoned so much. I, that standing on a curb got to me. You know, when we were in Ireland and we had broken up, you know, nicely enough and just was kind of, and then, but he, he cared for me and he said, are you okay? Are you going to be with what's going on? That's when he licked my tears, which is a beautiful thing to do. Who does that? And he cared no for me. No one's done it for me. Oh, and he was beautiful about it, but it was because I was on a curb, literally a curbstone. And the car was pulling out, like my mother's car, going to Florida and leaving me. Um, so I, I guess I didn't pick out good relationships, whatever that means. And the last one was this actor. We hung out. I wrote a play, and um, we were in it together, and I directed it also and everything. We had a lot of fun, you know. And then it, it wasn't, though, a healthy relationship. And so we broke up. And so it's not that I wanted to stay with him, but I felt abandoned. And I literally, again, chased after him, even in a car. I chased him to car. I've written this great micro story. This one's called Go Away. And I captured, it's hilarious. I mean, I captured, you know, he's in his house, I'm pounding on the door. Oh my God. Him, on, and then this chase scene that I did, he ran out trying to, you know, and I'm in the car. Well, it was like, I watched one other scene with my father having a breakdown when I was 17. My mother was driving. I was in the back seat. And then he must have just started his hallucinations, for want of a better word. And he kept turning around like that. And I'm here, you know, and Dad, what, what, what is it? What is it? And he said, they're coming after me. They're coming after me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it was like, and then I said, who? I was scared. Like, who, Dad? Who? Like, yeah. who? The IRS, he said. And oh, so there's that. And so, I mean, that stayed with me, that kind of, the chase scene in the car was me. Mm -hmm. I only realized this much later. I mean, I wouldn't do that. 
I would never do that. Now, people need to know about my healing. My <laughs> healing? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm free. I was diagnosed with anxiety disorder, <laughs> like many people were in, you know, whatever, Lexapro and all this stuff. Uh, Cymbalta almost killed me. I became suicidal. I was horrible. And then I read a book called EMDR, what they're using for veterans. But suddenly this woman opened up and said, this can be used for other, you know. And then I was sitting there with a, a good therapist that I had. And I said, do you know about this EMDR or anyone who deals with trauma? Because, well, I liked her therapy sessions. It was just like, okay, let's talk about your inner child. And, you know, it was, it was fine. But it didn't release anything. Mm. And so she said, oh, yes, I do, right in town. And she studied with... Oh, my God, yes, yes. My client is reading this. Dr. Vander called The Body Keeps Score, Brain, Mind, Body, in the Healing of Trauma. So in this book, I have a whole section called Healing from Trauma. It's very clearly told. I revised it to get it really good and tight so that people could understand that kind of movement and then how EMDR works. Um, I had... 28 sessions, the wow. same that my father had of track treatments. I had of trauma. It just happened to be that way. It healed me. So what happens is that, that's what Vander Kolb points out, is our, I didn't even know really about this, left brain and light, right brain, that the left brain and right brain have to work together. And when you experience trauma, they don't work together. The trauma takes over. And so what EMDR does, that therapy that no other therapy does, that I believe, it integrates the two brains. And so what happens is you become, hello, an observer, mm. which fits in with me. Instead, you're not traumatized anymore. You can tell it like a story. I, I've got to read this one little example if I can. Okay, when I was working with her, um, you know, a couple sessions in and everything, I, I said, I had this horrible experience. I got triggered. It was just, here's the example. I went to see the movie. This is in 2004, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless yes. Mind. Okay. Yes. Uh, Bob and a strange couple literally erasing each other from their memories mm. through some kind of treatment. The idea seemed interesting, especially after a breakup. Mm. Fortunately, and this was my mistake. I didn't read the rest of the synopsis to learn that the treatment was electroshock therapy. When the movie showed the man with electrodes placed on his scalp and having what looked like a seizure, my body went into shock. I'm in a movie theater. My body was frozen. I sat frozen in my seat. I had to struggle with my weighted down body to leave the theater. It was indeed as if my body remembered. My therapist told me, you had a flashback. Yeah. And watching someone in a movie being treated with electroshock therapy triggered a traumatic memory, my father's experience that caused me to relive the event as if it were happening in the present. And what this EMDR therapy does, it no longer is happening in the present. So if I went to that movie now, it wouldn't be happening in the present. It would be the goal is to have painful memories relieved rather than relived. And if you don't do something about trauma, it will keep knocking like here. It was at my heart. Talking like decades later, I didn't walk around thinking, oh, I'm really traumatized. I didn't even understand any. I just knew. But I love the notion that, and I think we should all be more aware of the body-mind connection. Because your body, if you've been traumatized, your body will tell you. And it will make you do something or you have to live with it and you're just, you know. Yeah. And to think, I mean, I feel great now. I don't get traumatized. And so that. when was the, when did you do the therapy? 
2004. So it was too late for like, you know, I mean, I had my children growing up and I still had issues. And unfortunately, I mean, I would love to have had that happen earlier. Instead, I got Lexapro and all these things that just didn't because, you know, oh, oh, you have anxiety disorder. Um, excuse me, I wonder what cause, could something be causing it? You could just have an inherited anxiety disorder. I'm not, but it could be that something has really caused this. And I had a lot of people trying to help me in different ways. Hmm. So, but my relationships all played out like that. So here I am. I, I'm enjoying, frankly, living with, like say, I'm living with myself. Hmm. Especially during this pandemic, you know, we all have many selves. So there's one self and another and another, and they just kind of... What side of yourself have you enjoyed embracing the most? Turning observations into writing. Writing is a way of life for me, and I've just come fully into it. And I'm loving it and taking off. The creativity really makes me feel alive. Hmm. It really does. So it comes out that way. And I have a lot to write about. It was there and it's okay. It came out later. So this is another thing. Something traumatic happens or whatever happens in our lives or this relationship or that relationship. But as we move on, some other things that have been covered up or kind of waiting, they can kind of come out. I mean, I feel in a good upward trend. You do. You're not scared of things that might come up. No. um, No. And I, I do yoga, tai chi meditation. We've only got this moment. And what if we only have this day? We better think about that. You know, that doesn't have to be a negative thing. No, it should be a motivator. Be the great motivator. I think we don't appreciate. I'm generalizing. You know, some people aren't doing this, but all the running around and just, you know, lifetime is short, relatively speaking. It really is. And so, and I asked myself, how do I want to live now? How do I want to be? What do I want to do? I feel very lively and spirited and good. And during this pandemic, I mean, I've been in seclusion. I already planned to be in a writer's retreat in my own townhouse here. So I'm working like eight hour days because I've been doing a lot of publicity related writing and interviews and all kinds of things. So it's made me think about all of these things. You know, writing, I feel fortunate that I have it, that I have the podcast during this time. You know, there's a lot of people that don't know how to hear themselves and used a lot of the things, just life, you know, uh, work, all of that to enable them to not listen. And now with this pandemic, you know, the voice is actually creeping in. And it's great that you're someone that's not trying to bury that, but that you've actually devoted your hours and your days to hearing that voice more clearly. Yes. Right on, everybody. (laughs) What did you feel putting the final dot at the end of the sentence of this book? What was the feeling that you had that overwhelmed you the most? Oh, I'm so pleased about what I came to in the end into the, the whole notion of hope. I want to just read a little of the ending, can I? Do I sure. Have time? I quote here my mother, the snow is up to the mailbox when you were born, my mother liked to brag, followed by <laughs> he smiled everywhere we went. All my years growing up, I remained attached to my mother. The umbilical cord turned to an invisible golden thread that made it possible for me to survive and eventually to thrive. Mm. It's my birthday. Groundhog Day. I'm so writing this. Winter weather advisory, traveling hazardous, dinner celebration plans disabled, snow up to the mailbox. Mm. 
I go for a walk outside the townhouse tucked into a wooded hillside where I live now, knowing that I will see my shadow and go back inside until the weather turns, the sun shines, and it's time to plant again. Hmm. That's where I end up with that until it's time to plant again. Mm. And it's going to in the burial. And, the, and then I end with a quote by Rebecca Solna. Your life is a thread, a narrative unspooling in time, and a story is a thread. But each of us is an island from which countless threads extend into the world. I have pulled out one thread from the tangle of a tapestry mm. of a particular time, and nothing in, in my account is untrue, except perhaps the coherence of a story when really there are so many stories. Mm. And so I struggled with coherence through this whole, you know, at first I had all these flash pieces, but it didn't really cohere. How could you read this as a book? But I must have made it because people are reading this now are telling me they just go right through it. It just coheres. I had to get that not just as a writer, but as a human being. To understand how it all connects. Yeah. And I like the ending. Do you like it? Yes. I've always been fascinated by the fact that we choose one thread and it's true to us. But if we were to choose the one right next to it, the whole story might sound different. That's a good point. Yes. So it's like really just what we focus on. And sometimes, you know, the mood that we're in, the perspective that we have, you know, like you said, you had the writer's group and you were in a place where you were really like kind of hot off your sister and everyone kind of went on that too. But with more time, you softened a bit. And so it's kind of like what perspective does to us and how it changes the story as well. We need to be able to shift our perspectives and not just get stuck in our own story. During this time, it seems it's people get stuck more in their stories or, you know, I want you to be like me or let's just be around people, you know, like that kind of, there's a lot of polarization in the world politically and everything and personally. And I think we've got to find ways to connect somehow and hear each other's stories. Yes. It's a problem. It's a social problem. Right. Right. I could say so much about that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Instead of just talking about, the details of the day to really dive in with someone and uncover, you know, where they came from, why they think the way they do, why they're choosing as they are, who they want to become, all those things. Yeah. One of my favorite kind of ideas is that if you want to be interesting to someone else, show that you're interested in them. And I think that a lot of the times that like we think so much that we have to sell ourselves to people. And we do that by talking about maybe our story or not sharing our story, but instead that if we could become more curious about the person in front of us. Yeah. My goal is to prompt conversation as such, but to get people talking about their own relational lives, take something away from it. It should invite conversation. I feel like I achieved that. Hopefully I did, you know, invited something. I love that. I love that goal to inspire conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell my audience where they can find you. Pamela-Gay, G-A-Y, dot com. And when does your book come out? It came out May 26th. Oh, okay. She writes press, and it came out during Mental Health Awareness Month. Nice. And during the pandemic. I'm yeah, like, I know. What am I going to do? You That's know. crazy. But I've been going out and about, but... Um, You can contact me on my website, too. I'd love to hear from people. That would be great. That's what's hard about, you know, you're writing and then you... you Trust me, I know. 
I mean, even having, you know, hours and hours and hours of a podcast, it's crazy yeah. to think about when people do reach out, they'll tell you that they've been listening for months and you have no idea. You have no idea that someone's listening or, you know, I think that even beyond being a writer or having a podcast that people hoard compliments, they hoard compliments. They don't share it with people. They think that some people have heard it too much or, you know, all those things. And I think that we're put into each other's lives to, to be there and, and witness people and share the things. And, and if you feel something by a conversation, you should tell that person that you felt something, but I think it's hard for people to, well, thank you for doing this with me. Oh, I've really enjoyed talking to you and meeting you, and, and, and it's wonderful, the work that you're doing. Thank you. Congratulations about your work in finding a treatment that really kind of unlocked you. Yes. I feel unlocked. Unlocked. That's great. <laughs> I'm unlocked. Watch out. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, Com. And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone.